Welcome to the Transformation Talks podcast, in-depth conversations on transformation with Rajiv Dingra, founder and CEO of RDNX Network. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another edition of Transformation Talks podcast. Uh, we are very, very excited today. We have a global chief digital officer of the Vela company, uh, Mr. Chris Chesbro. Thus, let me introduce him formally. Uh, Chris Chesbro is the digital first international marketing executive with a proven track record with marketing in the digital age business application of information technologies, innovation frameworks, and e-commerce business growth. Passionate about the power of positive change and the role that people play in driving it. Lover of questions and hater of questionnaires. Don't we all hate questionnaires? In <laughs> December 2020, uh, the Vela company was successfully spun off from Koti in a sales agreement with the private equity firm KKR. As part of the creation of the company, Chris became its global chief digital officer. In this role, he is responsible for leading the company's one digital team across e-commerce, technologies, business intelligence, data strategy, digital and influencer marketing, and information technologies. Chris is an American national based in Paris, France. Before joining Vela Company, he was the SVP of Digital Transformation at Coty Professional Beauty, and he spent 10 years at the L'Oreal Group in both its United States headquarters and global headquarters in a variety of brand and corporate roles. He started his career in fashion at Brooks Brothers and Ralph Lauren before joining the marketing world at the advertising agency OMD. Uh, we really welcome you, Chris. Thanks for taking our time to joining our podcast. Welcome to Transformation Talks. Thanks, Rajiv. It's great to, great to be here. And thanks for the very kind introduction. I'm happy to be able to chat with you today. Great. Chris, let's quickly start off. You know, we've had like a crazy, crazy uh, year that's gone by for everyone, but more so including uh, marketers, uh, chief digital officers. How has 2020 changed the landscape? for marketing uh, for now and the future decade uh, what has changed for large brand marketers you you know you are you are you have a ringside view of how large yep. marketers think so tell us more about what has been disrupted what has changed by 2020 what do you think will be the difference going forward for large marketers definitely so i think one of the things that I think is really true about 2020 and I'm definitely not the first person to say this so I take absolutely no credit for it is that it really accelerated a number of existing trends that were either on the surface or underlying slightly. Um, and, and I'll go into that in a bit more detail. But for me, 2020 was really a year of people. Um, there's a, a, an immense people impact to the pandemic, not just from an illness perspective, but also from a livelihood and uh, an, an economic livelihood side of the house as well. So I think for me, that's one of the most important things for us to keep in mind about the true impact of 2020. When I translate that into the mind of a marketer or the mind of a person selling different consumer packaged goods products or other products that touch consumers, it just means that we had to be even more intensely focused on the users, uh, the users who are buying the products, but also critically the, the employees. Um, 2020 was a year also of, of, um, of, of energy management, if you will. 
people working from home, the work days blended into the uh, personal life more so than ever before. I found it very much so for myself as well. It's when you're sitting at your dining room table, it's very easy to just never stop working. Um, so the, one of the names of the games for, for us in terms of how we manage people was around that energy management, around that time management, and really empowering people to ring fence their personal lives and, and their professional lives. And that's a constant conversation and a constant challenge for us, especially when you still have markets that have schools closed or in various levels of um, states of, of open versus closed the ability to take care of your five-year-old, your seven-year-old, while you're also taking care of your, your, your day-to-day business is quite a challenge. And it's something that we have to really keep in mind. And to me, that's going to be a durable and lasting change in the way that we manage, we manage talent. And then from a more marketer's perspective, from a consumer-facing marketer or a business-facing facing marketer, it really, to me, meant an even greater obsession to the way the users are consuming content and information about what you're trying to market. Um, I think this is, again, an underlying trend that's existed for a long time, but the idea of push marketing versus conversational marketing, conversational marketing, excuse me, is really one of the the main shifts that I see in in 2020. Um, The ability to put out a Super Bowl-esque style ad is gotten more and more expensive and less and less effective, in my opinion. And, and I see the, the rise of conversation, especially with um, the meteoric rise now in the past three or four months of, of um, platforms like Clubhouse, that conversational marketing and conversational um, approach to selling products and, and improving products is also one of the durable changes that I see in, in the industry as well overall. That's that's interesting. And and do you feel that the, the market has sort of, you know, accelerated and shifted, but the uh, the uh, providers or the 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 solutions, the services providers or your agency partners or in general, that's still shifting uh, or slowly shifting to meet the requirements of marketers uh, or in, in this new sort of world that we are moving towards? Absolutely. I mean, I'm, I'm a firm believer of the principle that an agency is a reflection of a client and that a partner is a reflection of a client. Uh, I had a, a boss many years ago who said that to me, and, and it's a principle that stuck with me consistently. Um, and I can name example after example of where a, a client team is super well organized and therefore the agency is super well organized and the exact inverse where the client team is not as well organized and therefore it's difficult for the agency team and the partner team to be well organized. So I say that as a, as a principle because the, the client's mindset needs to shift. Uh, and once that client mindset starts to shift, partners start to shift with it. And of course, when you look across the continuum of different marketers, you have truly digital first, e-commerce first partners that are working with with digital first, e-commerce first um, um, partners. Uh, and, and those ecosystems tend to be more focused on best in breed partners versus generalist do everything in a single full stack solution type of partners. Whereas the more traditional marketers tend to gravitate towards those full stack solution partners, a, a, a single throat to joke, if you will, versus managing the complexity of having the absolute best in breed of every single technology, every single activation technology, etc. And I, I think that's a shift that 
uh, again, has has started to come up and started to crop up in the bigger marketers. Um, but with with the acceleration that we've seen, thanks to the the effects of the pandemic, I only see that accelerating even further. You know, for our, for ourselves, we have a blend. We work with a number of the more full stack traditional partners, if you will, but we're increasingly um, uh, increasing the size of our footprint with more of those best of breed partners that are very good at very specific tasks, as in pricing management, as in predictive analytics versus working with a partner that does everything from supply chain to e-commerce to human resources information systems as an example so so that's something where it's quite easy for a company who's starting from scratch if you will and building a new product uh, a new product from scratch to start from that best of breed approach but when you're a big company like ourselves six thousand employees um, you know, $2 billion in sales uh, were the result of multiple acquisitions and mergers over the past 10 or 15 years. There's a lot of legacy system in there. So it's much harder for us to start from scratch, if you will, on a number of different processes or a number of different platforms. Um, but that's where you need to prioritize where are we going to get the most impact? Are we going to save a significant amount of time on low value tasks by changing a human resources system, for example, or are we going to be able to drive a large amount of incremental revenue by changing the approach that we have to e-com technology and demand creation that's associated with that? So that's where it becomes very specific to each individual business. Um, but, but I'm a big fan of injecting some of that best of breed approach into uh, even legacy systems, because it also puts those legacy partners, those full stack partners on their toes a little bit, uh, which is always great. That's, that's very interesting. And, and I, I, I do believe that 2020 is also uh, put into focus, uh, you know, really bleeding edge technologies of deep tech like AI, XR and blockchain. Uh, how do you foresee these technologies disrupting, transforming business and brands and even marketing? Uh, in, in the coming decade? And, and do you have a view on uh, uh, where uh, tech uh, starts to uh, uh, become a differentiator uh, as a competitive advantage uh, uh, for uh, large brands and consumer-facing brands like yourself? Sure. So I would, I would look at it in two ways because, you know, we could talk for hours about any one individual piece of those technologies that you mentioned um, and that would be a ton of fun, but maybe not the most fun for, uh, for the listeners to talk in detail about every single one. I, I would right. say in terms of the business framework, I look at it in, in two different ways. One is a services mindset. You know, product by itself, in many cases, is no longer a substantial enough differentiator to win the hearts and minds of a consumer. Um, you have to have a product that does something that no other product in the market does, you or you have to have an efficacy, you know, in our in our business, the lasting effect of hair color, um, the ability for a nail polish to not chip after a few days, those types of things are differentiators. But there are a number of companies around the world, both large and small, that deliver against those types of need states. So for me, it's really about the service that the brand offers, that the company offers on top of the product that creates the differentiation. And something like augmented reality, as an example, is one of those services. It gives the customer the ability to try a product on before they use it. Um, 
virtually. It gives the opportunity for a hairdresser, for example, to showcase right. to a client what a color would look like, what a new haircut or new hairstyle would potentially look like, and then build that into a longer term clienteling and CRM strategy for each of those small businesses. So to me, I look at those technologies in the lens of how can we use them to provide additional services to our customers and our consumers. And, and then do you think those services actually create a, a differentiator to the extent of creating brand preference, loyalty, uh, uh, and more than just engagement? Uh, Absolutely. Absolutely. I think there are certain things that have become table stakes. You know, five years ago, seven years ago, it was very clear that ratings and reviews were ta absolute table stakes. I now think that certain things such as augmented reality, virtual try-on really become table stakes in an e-commerce environment for fashion, beauty, et cetera. Um, so it really becomes one of those things where, you know, you need to have between five and seven images, you need to have a long form description and you need to be able to have the ability to have the customer try the product on before they buy it. Even if it is just a, a more of a plaything in certain situations, there are going to be customers who will make their decision based on that virtual try on. Where it starts to become interesting for the brands is when you're able to bundle those types of services into digital business models. And, and this is something that I'm really interested in right now is the, is the creation of service as a product SaaS style business models that are adjacent to the core business models of the company. You know, we're, we're primarily a hair and nail business. So we sell physical products, but we also sell education and upskilling to our salon partners and our hairdresser partners and our nail technician partners. And, and there's a real value to those, to those trainings. I also believe that there's an opportunity for us to create service as a product, digital bundles that become standalone business units that we treat with the same level of rigor and same level of focus as we would a new launch in a hair care market or a new launch in a nail gel market. Um, and that's something I'm, I'm particularly interested in right now because those create um, durable revenue streams for the company, which allows us to better serve our salon partners. It allows us to better serve our, um, our, our nail technician partners because it removes some of the volatility out of the seasonality of the business um, and, and allows us to, to innovate. I mean, this is, this is the dream of most um, technology companies. You get a durable SaaS style uh, business in place and it spins off significant free cash flow. If we can then create that type of model in a beauty technology world and create significant free cash flow associated with that, that allows us to spin off investments um, to, uh, to better support those salons, better support those customers and consumers um, with, the, with the best possible products, with the best possible education, um, and, and increase our reach at the same time. Chris, this is very interesting. So what you're saying is, and, and let's expand this beyond the uh, uh, beauty segment or the beauty category. You're basically saying a large brand uh, products company, uh, even if it's into brick and mortar products, in your case, you know, uh, nail and hair uh, products, uh, there is an opportunity to become a, a, a digital media company through uh, content and, and also a, a, a software as a service or even a deep tech uh, solutions provider which adds incremental value to the consumer's life or your customer's life, thereby creating 
additional business models that could be self-sustaining and scalable. And suddenly you are no longer just a, a, a nail and hair products company, but much more than that. Right? Exactly. Exactly. I mean, I look at the example, it's a, it's a very cliche example, but I think it's illustrative of, of the, the objective. And I like to use it because it's ambitious. But in the States, Apple has a iPhone as a service plan, essentially. You pay a monthly rate and you get a new phone every single year. Um, you know, that type of model create is based on the loyalty that exists within that, within that brand. I mean, I myself, I think, have six different Apple devices at least. Um, um, uh, so, so, you know, uh, that's the type of model that becomes very, very interesting. And if, yeah. if a t more traditional CPG, a more traditional product company is able to replicate even a portion of that type of, uh, that type of approach, it's substantial, um, substantial because the business model that we work in is, is, um, is seasonal and being able to smooth out that seasonality will have significant business benefits, which in turn allows us to better serve our customer and consumer base. So, so do you believe that every company in some form or the other would, would become sort of a digital media or a, 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 a tech company uh, uh, to ensure that uh, it, it sort of uh, speaks to this audience and builds in those revenue models? You mentioned Apple. Apple also has iTunes, which is a massive business of yeah. content and media platform beyond its physical products, so as to say. So far removed from an Apple kind of company or a physical company, hair and nail, mm -hmm. and you're, you're saying this, do you see such opportunities for other verticals and other brands and other companies as well? My, my personal perspective on that question is that if a, a company is operating in a market that is, is fragmented, that has multiple product propositions that are relatively similar to each other, the absolute answer is yes. I mean, I look at wow. the way that Amazon Basics has disrupted categories in the paper, uh, consumables categories, the medical supply categories. You know, those are, those are significant established businesses that have low points of differentiation vis-a-vis -vis each other across brands. And, and, you know, the opportunity to create new revenue streams associated with those types of businesses maybe a little bit harder with paper towels than with, uh, with a product like nail polish, of course. Um, but the opportunity to create those types of business models, I think, is, is critical to explore to understand what the future of the business is going to look like, um, especially with the effects of the, of the pandemic uh, and the rise of e-commerce penetration, the simplification of at-home delivery, et cetera, et cetera. You know, I look at a market like Italy, which within the, within the EU um, is not the most digitally advanced market within the EU, and Amazon was facing significant challenges in creating a strong penetration in that market um, prior to the pandemic. But due to the pandemic, they significantly increased their, their household penetration in Italy, and that appears to be durable for them. Um, so you know, I think there's, a, there's a, a shift in behavior that is sticky, uh, that is durable and, and companies that operate in fragmented markets with m lower product differentiation um, than, say, uh, certain categories, I think it's absolutely important. Fascinating. Uh, so where do you see the role of ad tech and martech, uh, given that a lot of the 
you know, uh, uh, a lot of the e-commerce and a lot of the digitization and a lot of the other aspect uh, and the reach to consumers currently may not be in all markets across the world, but definitely in some markets. So what, what do you think is the future of ad tech and martech and how that can plug into this whole uh, transformation that all companies possibly might be going through of becoming more digital media and more software driven? Sure. So the, the, the magic of technology is when it complements and enhances a, a process or creates an entirely new process or an entirely new gesture. Um, I look at the, you know, the swipe up as a great example of, of a, a, an entirely new gesture that didn't exist beforehand. And I look at the ad tech martech through that exact same lens. We need to be able to process advertising in a targeted fashion to key cohorts, key consumer groups. And, um, and the technology should allow us to be able to do that in as seamless a way as possible. The challenge in this space is that um, there's an incredible amount of diversity in solutions. Uh, you know, there's the famous chart that's been, that's been republished now every year, I think for the past 10 or 12 years of the, of the ad tech MarTech ecosystem. And now there are so many partners on it. It looks like, uh, it looks like somebody spilled an anthill <laughs> on the street. <laughs> um, so navigating that is, is highly challenging. Um, and it also goes back to a little bit about differentiation. There becomes less and less differentiation between those different partners. So there's not necessarily a right solution. Um, there are certain fundamentals like transparency of costs, transparency of pass-through costs, transparency of, 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 of inventory, et cetera, those types of things. I'm a firm believer of the, of the advertiser slash client absolutely needs to own the contracts associated with those types of deals versus an agency partner owning those contracts just for transparency's sake. Um, but it becomes to a certain point where you, it's harder to make a wrong choice than it is to make a right choice in, in the partner selection. And it's about how you set up that relationship, set up that integration, and then how you use it with consistency in an integrated fashion across the end-to-end -end business. Um, the, the, you know, there's no silver bullet. Um, and if you keep on looking for one, you're going to waste time. And in certain cases, this is an opportunity to make a quick decision and, and run against that decision versus taking the time to do a two-year RFP that suddenly means that the partners you've selected are no longer the best in breed for that particular need. Um, so, so this is a place where I think there's a real need to move quickly, fail fast, and, and move things in and out um, as, as the market develops. That, that's interesting you say that. And, and with the background of the, the privacy movement, the Google stance on cookies and, and the importance of first party data. And there's also this whole, uh, uh, you know, the, 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 the discussion around in-housing uh, versus with, let's say, multiple vendors via your agency network, so as to say. So, I mean, what's your take on this entire aspect of first party data? Uh, you know, with the rise of, uh, or possibly the rise of CDP and, and the in-housing discussion that's there on the programmatic side? Um, I mean, I would say overall, it's, it's a mandatory at this point. If, if big marketers, even small marketers, don't have plans to create their own first-party databases, I think that there's a significant risk to their viability in the, in the mid to long term. Um, you know, the, the ability to 
to capture consumer data and maintain a relationship with them on your terms that are agreed to by the consumer, that is, I believe, really table stakes. And if it's not table stakes today, it will be in the next one to three years. So, so to me, the ability to capture that and manage that data uh, is absolutely mandatory. And, and doing that in an in-house fashion is critical. You know, I, I take a corollary that's from a very different component of the digital marketing ecosystem, but in the rise of the influencer marketing scene in 2013, you know, 14, 15, especially within the beauty space, um, there was a huge uh, proliferation of influencer marketing agencies that would be able to manage things in a more transactional way. Because for a lot of marketers, influencers were immediately or initially paid for out of media budgets. So media teams are used to working in DSPs. They're used to working in tools like uh, like media tools, whatnot, or TuckTuck, or these types of platforms. So you know, it was logical that if your media buyer was suddenly going to be buying influencer posts, you need to you need to systematize it. But that was a critical failure in the influencer marketing world, in my opinion, because influencer marketing is about relationships. You know, if you look back at uh, you know for the past twenty years. If you do any type of touch point analysis about the most influential touch points in, in making a consumer make a decision or helping a consumer make a decision, word of mouth is always the number one, two, or three. And influencer marketing is, a, is an extension of word of mouth. But if you do that in a disingenuous way, um, uh, it's not going to work. You know, if somebody runs up to you on the street and shoves a bottle of shampoo in your face and says, this is the best shampoo in the world, you're not going to listen to them. But if your friend or neighbor or relative says, hey, I've been using this product and it's been really fantastic, you're more likely to listen to them. And, and the best influencer relationships sit closer to that friend relationship than they do to the person running up to your face in the, in the street. And um, um, so I use that as an example of you need to take that relationship in-house. To me, it's the same thing with consumer data, with customer data. The objective of having the data is not to have the data. It's to be able to have a relationship and facilitate that relationship with that consumer over time. Um, so, so I believe it's really critically important to build those databases in-house and build the management of those databases in-house as well. And, and by in-house, you mean at a, at a click of a button on a dashboard with, with real-time uh, data insights that can have actionable uh, business uh, uh, you know, outcomes and decision-making as well. Because that's currently, at least on the marketing side, there are a few layers uh, for that, right? No, I, I wouldn't believe any global client would have uh, all their marketing, global marketing data uh, in, in a single dashboard viewable to them uh, at a click of a button, uh, including no. their customer data and to be able to take action on that in spite of all the technology that we talk of. I would love to have that, but correct. I think when you're dealing with, with especially companies such as ourselves, as I mentioned, that are the product of multiple mergers and acquisitions over the course of a number of years, absolutely. It's difficult for us to be in a situation where we would be able to have all of that at, a click of, at the click of a button, exactly. But I think it's important that you create that as your, your, your North Star, your lighthouse, if you will, because you have to work towards that type of objective as a three-year objective or whatever time frame objective that makes sense, and then work towards it. Um, and find the building blocks that help you get closer and closer to that objective overall. It's not going to be reached or achieved overnight, but if you start with, I, with, a, with the mindset of, I'm only going to be able to achieve this, 
then you're only going to be able to achieve that. It's the same mentality of in, in, in sports. You know, if you think you're going to win a gold medal at the Olympics, you train for it, you work as hard as you can. Um, it's a bit of a, a dramatic example, I know, but if you, if you set that as your objective and, and you, you uh, build your plan associated with what it takes to achieve that objective, you're more likely to get closer to it than if you were to say, uh, I think my best chance is to win the state championships. Um, and, and I think that mentality needs to be taken in, in, in business as well. If your objective is just to, you know, have email addresses that may or may not be active, then you're probably only going to be able to get email addresses that may or may not be active. But if your vision is a full 360 view of the consumer across multiple touch points. So if a sales rep notices that one of our customers started an order on our b2b e-com platform there should be automatic notifications to that sales rep that that cart has been abandoned or has not been finalized and the, the order has not been com uh, completed those types of things sound very very simple especially if anyone listening is a, an e-commerce native company that sounds like uh, crazy that, that that's not possible but for a lot of bigger companies that's a challenge uh, because of the way systems have been set up over the years so um, building that expertise in-house and managing that expertise in-house is really critical. That's, that's fascinating, Chris. Uh, but, you know, the, the designation of the chief digital officer has been something that has come up in the last decade, right? And uh, uh, you, you hold that designation today. How do you think the role is being transformed? It's such a, it's a, it's such a new uh, role and designation in companies. How is it transforming in this current decade? And what would you recommend uh, as as a colleague to other uh, colleagues of yours who lead in similar positions, uh, as the key areas they should focus on and build upon uh, going forward. You mentioned some of them in this in this conversation already, but if you were to summarize, what would be the two or three key areas that you would like to focus on, and would you recommend your colleagues in in similar positions and similar large companies to focus on in this coming decade? Absolutely. I mean, I, I think there are no really two or three CDO jobs that are the same across companies. And I think that's really important because yeah. digital, digital is a catch-all. Um, and it's very easy to have digital touch every single part of every single process uh, and every single function of the company. And, and you know, the, the value that a CDO can add in automating certain workflow processes in a factory might actually be greater than the value they can add by upskilling a finance person on dashboarding, if you will. So I, I use those examples as random examples, but they're, they're cogent because the CDO's job needs to be defined based on what the company needs to achieve. And every company has a different starting point. Every brand has a different starting point. So that's why I, I don't think there is a single standard definition of the role of the CDO. I think that where there's benefit in sharing is in the individual experiences that each CDO has in an individual company, there will be overlap with other companies. You know, I, I sit on a, a committee with the, with the MMA of a group of a number of CDOs from GSK Consumer Health to IKEA to CBS, um, Airbus, a number of a number of big companies, Colgate Palmolive, um, and and we're actually kicking off a body of work right now with um, 
with Oxford. Um, that's an update of work that was done, I believe, in 2018 to look at the role of the CDO across a number of different organizations over the next couple of months. And, and of course, that work is kicking off now, so I don't have a concrete answer to share with you. But my, my belief is that what it'll show is that there are standards approaching how to manage, you mentioned CDP, uh, how to manage marketing um, upskilling to take it from traditional marketing versus digital marketing to just marketing. Um, and those types of processes, I think there will be correlations across. But if I compare my business to um, uh, you know, Mark Spikert's business, who's the CEO of GSK Consumer Health, we have very different business models, but there are correlations as well. Um, you know, there's a store component, there's a small business component, there's a, there's a, a safety component, there, there are correlations to. So I think there are commonalities, but I don't believe that there's one single definition of what a CDO job is, because the best CDOs have their roles tailored to exactly what their companies need to achieve. That is that is fascinating, uh, Chris. I think we are about at the end of uh, uh, our uh, discussion, and we've spoken about so many things. Uh, you know, right from uh, uh, how every company is going to be a digital media company and a software company in the future, how in housing uh, and taking control of your first-party data is going to be uh, the key element for most marketers, and and also the how the role of the CDO is is unique in every company based on and what. That company. So, if there is, you know, one wish to a, a change that you wish to see in the uh, market that you currently deal in, and you have a, a a global business and a global market, but what is that wish as a CDO you wish would change uh, a change that you would see uh, in the market? It's a great question, Rajiv. I think the the most important thing for me. And, and it's really fundamental to the way I manage my, myself, my career, our, the team that I'm responsible for, is a focus on the people who are doing the work. Um, and, and I don't necessarily think that this is a change, but I think it's something that we absolutely need to, you know, double, triple, quadruple down on. Um, you know, the, the past year and a half, you know, 13, 14 months have, have taught us the resiliency of people. Um, and, and have taught us, I think, in the best cases, not to take uh, for granted the resiliency of those people. So if there's one lasting change that I really hope to see is the, is the recognition of the, the humanity of the people who are, who are uh, contributing to these outcomes every single day and the, the reality of the, the balance and the intersection of professional and personal lives. Um, and uh, that, to me, is the one thing I, I, I hope that we are able to continue to focus on um, more broadly, not just within within what we're doing at the Weller Company, but also much more broadly within the industry at large. Amen to that. That's fantastic <laughs> note to end our podcast. Chris, thank you so much. This has been a fascinating, fascinating conversation, lovely insights, and I'm sure our listeners will take back a lot of value from it. Uh, thank you so much for being on Transformation Talks. Thank you, Rajiv. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Transformation Talks podcast hosted by Rajiv Dingra, founder and CEO of RDNX Network. Tune in next week for another interesting episode. Thank you.